Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books and subsequently each of our careers went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. So we are going to try to focus the conversation today on the anatomy of a bestseller, and in particular, a bestseller with a debut contract, right? And we have two Sunday Times bestsellers here with us, both Sun Yi and <laughs> Richard. Uh, were you? I don't even know that I know the difference. Uh, but were you instant bestsellers, or, or how did that go? You can take turns talking about that before we launch into it, I suppose. Yeah, Richard, first go for it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I would say uh, it was a week, a week one, week one bestseller, and then uh, and then dropped out of the chart like a stone. So. Um... <laughs> Which was expected, um, but uh, yeah, it was. I think if you sort of appear in the week, in the, I think if you appear in the list in the week that your book uh, is actually published, then it's a it's an instant, it's an instant bestseller. So yeah, it's instant for me too. Uh, and I think that's because yeah. all your pre-orders stack up. So really, that's right. Impressive as it sounds to be bestseller out the gate, your best mm. shot at being bestsellers when you launch. That's and right. then like Richard, I was there for one week, and the week after. Um, the bestseller list was swept away by a collective tidal wave of Stephen King, Colleen Hoover, Richard Osmond, and J.K. Rowling. Oh, wow. You didn't yeah. have a chance. Oh, no one did. Uh, uh, number 10 on that list that week was some guy that only sold 20K copies who, you know, that's five oh, times that's copies I sold <laughs> to get so on the bestseller list. But he couldn't compete with 127K out the gate like Richard Osmond. So, my God. I'd had a Richard Osman was the capstone to my um, efforts on the Amazon bestsellers ranking. I nearly got to number one on Kindle that day. I say, say nearly, didn't nearly, but got to like number eight. And Richard Osman was number seven. And I was like, well, I'm not going to dethrone him. Um, <laughs> he is also my nemesis and the bestsellers rank. <laughs> For Americans who don't know, Richard Osman is a, a very popular actor comedian here who who also writes cozy mystery books. And boy, do they sell like water in a desert. Oh my god, yeah. I was going to ask then if you want to talk about the hitting the Sunday Times list and your experience of that, because I think we could possibly compare notes on that and I would find it interesting. And just, I, I guess we can give an overview of what the Sunday Times list is and how you get on it. And in particular, I kind of want to know if you can answer this, when you knew you would hit list. The, the reason I asked that is because Book Eaters came out in August t- 2022. Mm-hmm. And I knew in January 2022 that we were going to hit list. Oh, wow. Okay. Just so, because of pre-orders? 
Uh, no. Well, I, I think I hit list in a different way from Richard. So go, it, it, yeah, oh, okay. feel free to answer that question and, and talk sure, about yours. Yeah. And I'll go back to mine. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting one. It's a very much like how the sausage is made um, story. <laughs> um, it's not the kind of like inspirational, <laughs> this is just a fucking incredible book and people kind of falling over themselves to buy it. Um, I remember I remember the process really well. So basically, Sunday Times list. So so for those who don't know, the Sunday Times bestsellers list is like the kind of premier um, uh, literary list in the UK. So similar to like the New York Times list, it's the UK's equivalent to the NYT bestsellers, right? Um, and they have lots of different categories now, and it's published, funnily enough, on in the Sunday Times, um, in the kind of culture supplement. And there's like a hardback bestsellers, there's a paperback bestsellers, there's a nonfiction bestsellers, and it's a top the top 10 in any given category. And what it does is it literally says the book and it says how many it's sold in that week. And it used to be the case, and it still is, you know, to, to a large extent, that getting on the list, the Sunday Times list or the New York Times list or whatever, is like kind of the, the pinnacle of the, of the career. I, I, and, it, and it is, and it was wonderful. I think these days, the landscape has changed slightly. And Sonia, you can talk about this um, more author authoritatively than I can, but crates now form a huge part of that. So what you see with lists is it's you know, often, as Sonia already said earlier in the podcast, it's your week one sales, your pre-orders, because you get a glut of pre-orders and your week one sales, it's, which is an artificially high spike. And then naturally it trails off. And so most people will only get one week, you know, in, in the list, unless you're a phenomenal bestseller. Um, and it's normally the first week, you know, so I, I don't think I can think of a single example where it's like your fifth or sixth week after publication that you suddenly hit the list. Um, and so what happened with Justice of Kings was um, the Orbit was, you know, putting some money behind it. They were marketing it. You know, everything was going well. And then we went out for lunch, uh, me and my agent and my editor in London. And um, we were talking about how basically what happened was Goldsboro Books, which is a uh, independent bookshop in, in the centre of London, they specialize in first editions and, and obviously i know that you both know this um and they specialize in first editions and what they tend to do these days um is they do like lovely editions they do like sprayed edges and they do like you know you sign it and you number it and whatever and it's kind of like a yeah it's just kind of like induced demand isn't it? it's like an artificial kind of um scarcity if you like special editions it's, a, it's, it's the absolutely the business model that works and they should have been doing it years ago but it's kind of really reached its maturity now and Goldsboro Books, the guy, the commissioning person who decides whether they do a Goldsboro edition, had decided they were going to do one for the Justice of Kings. And they had ordered 2,000. Now, 2,000 for the uninitiated is a phenomenally good number for um, a fantasy hardback. My agent told me um, most, most fantasy books will never, well, first of all, most fantasy books don't get a hardback full stop. Um, but those that do won't even sell 2,000 over the course of their lifetimes, let alone get know this deal i'm not saying that justice of kings is the best novel that's ever been written obviously not but you know it was a good number and i was everyone was really happy with it and that suddenly changed the thinking because initially we had been going for you know this is a good book it's going to do well we're going to give it a push it's our lead time debut title for this year blah 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 to well maybe we can hit the bestseller list with this and what it meant was because not only were they doing a crate edition but they were doing it I shouldn't use the word crate because it wasn't part of a crate. It was just a special edition. Not only were they doing a special edition, but it was also going to be part of their Goldsboro subscription service. So Goldsboro did, I think it was last year or maybe the year before. You sign up, you pay them 20 or 30 quid a month. 
and they send you a book. They hand they curate a list of books and they send you one. It's a beautiful first edition, signed, stamped, whatever. And it, Justice of Kings was going to go out in the February version of that. Now February, so this is a real this is a real perfect storm for me. So February was in a good way. February is a doldrums for media, generally speaking. Um, nothing much happens in February. So the lists were already quite depressed anyway. Um, and so when Sunny was talking earlier about Rowling and Osman and King hitting the list with like 50,000 sales week one or something. In February, I think, I mean, I have the copy of it somewhere here, but it was something like the number one was like maybe 5,000 or something. It wasn't, it was a lot, but it wasn't high, like super high. So it was very achievable. Suddenly we had the Goldsmith subscription, which was going to ship not all 2,000, but a large portion of them, certainly, maybe 1,000 or 1,500. There was uh, the groundswell of support that Orbit had already put behind the book with their marketing money. And there was even talk very, very briefly, although it didn't happen, of, an, of a sales embargo, because as you both know, sometimes books, they kind of bleed out around the edges. You know, books will go on sale a week or two before um, the official publication date. And there was talk of maybe not letting that happen, putting what a sales embargo it sounds a bit dramatic, and it, and it was in the end for me. Um, so that you physically prevent booksellers from selling it until the release date, because then again, you artificially increase the, the sales for that you know, crucial week one. But that didn't happen in the end. But lots of things conspired to happen. Um, and I think it was the week of my editor, because I think the list gets published. Obviously, it comes out on Sunday, but I think it kept, they know by th the Thursday before yeah. or something like that. And so he was able to email me and say, you know, congratulations, we've, we've made the list on, on Sunday. Um, and it was number five, I think. It was number five on the hardback fiction. So it was wonderful. You know, it was absolutely fantastic. Career high, you know, book one straight out of the gate. Sunday Times, phenomenal. That will appear on every book I ever write now forever. Brilliant. Um, but what it wasn't was Richard Swan has written an absolutely fucking incredible book and everyone around the world just has to have a copy. It was actually a bit more... It was a bit more complex. Yeah, it was more, <laughs> there was some orchestration. There was some artificiality to it. Um, and yeah, so the, the, the special edition certainly helped. There wouldn't have been a special edition if it wasn't a good book. So I don't want to kind of cut myself off at the knees. But having said that, if there hadn't been the Goldsboro edition, it wouldn't have hit the Sunday Times list. We would have sold maybe a thousand week one, which is a fantastic number. But in the end, we sold like two and a half, which was enough to land in the middle of the list. So, you know, it made a huge difference. And I think, and now you see, of course, and this is not to cheapen it at all, a lot of Sunday Times bestsellers and a lot of New York Times bestsellers is certainly for debuts or first books. Um, and I think a, a lot of that is down to these, these crates, these special editions. Yeah. Um, and Sonia, you, you can talk a lot more about that than I can. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, the t a term I've heard for special editions crates and s basically subscription services where you get either a, a book in it that's like a special version or just a regular version and oftentimes some uh, kind of paraphernalia and gadgets and things like that. Um, and the term that I've heard for that is independent gatekeepers in relation to, so I know gatekeeper has a really negative context in in on like Twitter, but they mean it in the way that uh, Kidlit will talk about parents and teachers as being gatekeepers, basically people who control like which books get bought. Uh, the UK sci-fi and fantasy market is, 
I would say, dominated by independent gatekeepers at the moment. Richard talked earlier about how bookstores buy books and they can return them. If a crate or subscription box or other independent gatekeeper buys books for their special edition, those are not returnable and those sales are guaranteed. And that means that they have a lot of power with publishers. You start seeing, you know, you if you're wondering why it seems like every new debut in the UK is hitting list, it's because the ones that are hitting list are often the ones that are picked for crates. And that means that publishers are then looking for books, which are crate books. I mean, that that's a whole podcast issue in itself. Like, what is a crate <laughs> book? Um, and it's a very certain type of sci-fi and fantasy novel, which can cross into mainstream and cross age categories usually. But that's essentially what happened for me is Harper picked up the book and they, they can't control this. You know, they can only try. They have good relationships with crates. They pitched it to the crates. Crates have different tiers at which they'll buy the book, depending on how many of their subscribers they think will actually take it. But some of these crates are very big. So at the high end, like the very high end, you, you can shift 30K copies yeah. selling to a crate, which is fucking bananas. Like that's mm. my entire American print run. At the, the Even at the lower end in the UK, you're talking like five to seven grand copies, which is still pretty bananas. And... I, I won't say how many I got with the Lumicrate because that information is is actually protected. But um, May of last year, I was signing books for Lumicrate and Broken Binding, and then because of that interest from those crates, Waterstones, which I don't think was very keen on me at the start, finally got in on it. it was like, okay, we'll make a special edition too. So in total, there were about twenty two thousand special edition books of some kind or another with different companies in the UK for book eaters, which is again fucking bananas and really blew my mind from signing. Um mm. and that so, you know, we found out basically in December that I'd gotten to one of these independent gatekeeper crates. And um another author who I won't name here said that means you're gonna hit list because that's how it works in the UK now. It's funny actually because because of release dates moving around and things actually the crate sales didn't count till later later in the month for me i think uh, in the middle of that right. jk rowling stephen king storm but it did push up interest and buzz enough that we hit list anyway on pre-orders and i think broken binding sales so you know when people are wondering like why do some books just seem to step off the debut platform and fly straight into the lists because there's like a whole system built around mm. elevating books to that list. And if you're not in that system, if you don't have the buzz, you don't have the crates and all this, it's really, I can't, it's really hard for debut books to do that. I'm not sure how you would do it. Um, other than very fluky cases like Iron Widow, where that, you know, Zero and they managed to get an amazing social media platform, stuff like that. I will say one thing for Craze, because because this is starting to sound a bit cynical. I do think some things about them are really good. And, and one of them is that I know that like a Lumicrate will read books from smaller publishers. They don't just pick up the buzziest book. And in fact, some of the buzziest books are too buzzy for them um, because it won't net them enough sales or interest. So you sometimes see these books come out of Lumicrate and it's like, who the fuck is that? Where, what? Oh, and it's like with a smaller publisher and it's, it's a less known book that they've read and they've loved. And they thought, yeah, we should put that in our subscription box. So it can be a way out for yeah. somewhere to the mid-sized press, but you know, it is changing the market noticeably. There's a lot of talk, at least from my friends who are on sub in the, the past couple of years from UK agents about like, 
is this a crate book? We think this is a crate book. Will crates like it? Can you make it more like a crate book? <laughs> um, I'm not sure how that's going to go for us long term. And I, as well, like, I don't think my publisher is evil for doing this. If your publisher is working its ass off to get you on list to to get you sales, they're doing what they should be doing, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, they didn't make the system. They're just trying to work with it as best they can. Um, but I, I realize how disheartening that description of the system must sound to people who don't know. So, so the only thing that I uh, I heard in there and that I happen to know about you two that I wanted to go back to is things that you know publishers do and and that maybe upcoming writers can uh, look for. Uh, to judge whether they're they're going to be getting the success they hope for out of the publication journey is arcs and other forms of hype or hype building activities on on behalf of the author that uh, you know your your publisher's doing. So we talked already about Richard, your uh, publisher doing orbit doing those 100 numbered special edition arcs, which I thought was really cool. But besides that, you said that they gave out quite a few arcs besides that, right? And I think Sunyi actually had a number for her arcs that were given away as well. I don't I don't know the exact number. So we had Unbound Galleys first. That's like literally just printed pages that, that mm. don't have to cover anything. That went out very early, um, almost a year and then True on top home. of that, we later had arcs, which have a cover and they look kind of like a book, but they're floppy and, the, and they're kind of smaller and, a, you know, lower quality print than a, a real book. Um, and there were arcs on both sides of the Atlantic for that. But I think for me that the biggest thing is like the biggest sign is that people are talking to you. Uh, you know how when you're in kind of Facebook writing groups or on Twitter and you hear people say like self-pub authors or querying authors or just basically people who aren't in quite in the system yet and one of their biggest fears is I'll get picked up by a publisher and then they'll edit my book to death and overwrite me and, and rewrite my book and I think I understand that fear but I don't think the thing you have to be afraid of is a publisher micromanaging you because because they wouldn't bother. That's not a good use of their time. The thing you have to be afraid of, they're, they're not going to rewrite your book when they could just get a different author. Like they wouldn't do that. And the thing that I think you need, the, the, always the warning sign is not, is a publisher micromanaging me because they don't tend to. It's, is a publisher acknowledging that I exist because if they don't give a fuck about you, that's when you're really screwed. If they don't notice that you exist if you're sending emails you don't get replies you get vague replies if they say things like oh we'll have a marketing meeting at some point and then it's kind of like you just get one social media document or something stuff like that is where i'd be concerned where there's a lack of information where it's vague that's that's where i would tell people yeah they're kind of maybe sidelining you a bit yeah. i think authors would definitely generally be thrilled to have an overabundance of communications from the editor oh yes <laughs> rather than the opposite problem which doesn't exist at all yeah. i um... i love the the i love the edit letter that is big and heaving and has lots of things to change i live in dread of the edit letter that's like yeah this is fine we'll just send it to print because that's <laughs> that, yeah then you're absolutely i think i think I think at the moment it seems it seems to me that the way the world is going, and this is sort of not just in terms of publishing, but sort of the broader creative industries, there's becoming an increasing pressure to make a big splash um, immediately. Um, and if you don't make a big splash immediately, that's deemed as a failure. So you're not like 
this is a great book. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of organically manage this growth and, and kind of build your career up. Because I think the, the market is fundamentally different now than it was even 20 or 30 years ago. And I think you know, maybe the, the 90s was probably the last decade in which you could sort of comfortably be a mid-list author and still earn enough money to, to live on and pay your bills. And then some probably for some people. And I think now, you know, as with many other aspects of life, this idea of the side hustle and the working more than one job and whatever, this idea that we're shifting from author as a job to you do writing as uh, you know as a, a part-time thing on top as, as, aside from your main job um and so once you have that number one once you can bank on authors accepting that that's the system you can pay them less sure um and you can split out the advances into small and small payments because it's not doesn't matter because you're not dependent on that income but also number two it's this idea that everything has to be massive or it's nothing and it's and it's not just writing it's on tv as well like you know um there was a huge hoo-ha when a few months ago when neil gaiman was like pounding the pavement on all social media playing saying everybody please you know watch well i can't remember that dream man what was the sandman thank you sandman <laughs> i didn't watch it but i'm sure it's very good <laughs> everybody please watch sandman because if it doesn't if it's not an immediate success like immediate success it's going to get cancelled um and that was true of like basically every big budget you know netflix series now that it's uh, Cowboy Bebop. I was talking about it literally yesterday because I actually really like that series, but it wasn't as successful enough so that they, they shit canned it like after like a week or something. Um, and I feel like publishing is almost the same. You and part of and part of it is just a vicissitude to the market. And I kind of feel sympathy for the publishers to a degree where they're like, right, we've got this debut. It's sink or swim, and it's a symptom of the marketplace being so crowded. You know, there are so many books being published now, and not just traditionally published, but indie published as well. Like literally anybody can write and publish a book these days. So it's a hugely crowded marketplace already. And there is something to be said for saying, well, if you don't make a big splash from the from straight out the gate, you're just going to sink into the ether and never be heard from again. Um, and there are a thousand books that are going to fill that vacuum. And so I do kind of get this idea that you have to put everything behind the debut. You have to spend a little bit of money, put something behind the debut, really give them the kind of the push that you can get. And then, because the way that my editor said it to me was, we'll do all of this marketing stuff, right? But at some point, the book has to just catch on and, and self-sustain. You know, we can't market it forever. Um, you know, we do a bit of marketing up front. We give it a push. And then it has to kind of just organically spread by word of mouth. That's what you, that's the best case, you know, scenario. You put some money behind it and then the word of mouth spreads. And if it's a good enough book, which is true, if it's a well-written good book that people like reading, it will find its market. You know, people will talk about it and it will spread. Yeah. And that's, then you get the self-sustaining sales. That's the dream. I mean, that's the best case scenario. But what happens, you know, often is you either have the publisher say, we'll put some money behind this. And the book one comes out and then, oh, it's not actually not quite done what we want. Um, what do we do? Let's close the doors on it. You know, let's cut our losses immediately um, and we'll just write off the whole thing. And then books two and three either don't really get released at all. They kind of get released quietly and then fade into the ether. Um, number one, or even worse, you know, the publisher is like, we put some money behind it. It's, oh, we're not quite getting the traction we would like. Even before book one, there doesn't seem to be any hype. So we're going to close the doors a stage earlier still you know and then even your book one is dead on arrival then and then you're really fucked um but it's you know the, the, de the death spiral is a well-documented phenomenon within publishing but i 
is and, and it all comes down to this thinking part of which is artificial and part of which just it reflects the reality of the market which is that your debut has to has to go well there's no like okay your, your, your first trilogy or your first book you know, wasn't quite where we wanted it to be but we think it's a really good book you know we know it's a good book hasn't quite found the market yet so here's some more money keep writing and you know it, you'll build up and and that's you know either then you hit the mid list forever or you just just die um but there's that kind of thinking doesn't seem to happen anymore and maybe i'm wrong in that but it does seem like it has to be all or nothing you know from the get-go i think it comes down to what your goal is doesn't it um and uh, there was a discussion on twitter not long ago about you know, what is it taboo to want success as an author um because for some for, for the longest time for me writing yeah. was an end in itself um and uh, you know before i before i started self-publishing in earnest um I only wrote for myself and I just enjoyed the process of writing and getting my ideas down on the page. And then when I create, when I generated an audience myself, then it became about writing for the reader rather than for me. Um, now it's about, well, I want to be a successful author. I want to be part of the zeitgeist. I want to have a big readership. Um, I want to make lots of money from my books. Um, and I also enjoy writing books. And I don't think any yeah. of those things are mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. But I think if your goal for the longest time for me, my goal was my life, my life's ambition is I want to get one book in print. You know, I want to get one book with a publisher and publish. And then that can never be taken away from me. Like I will be a published author then no matter what happens. I will die a published author. Now the goalposts have completely shifted, of course, for me personally. Um, but, it, you know, it is disheartening if your if your ultimate end goal is. I want to be a massive successful like household author with like 10,000 20,000 sales my name sure then that's going to be very difficult if your goal is I just want to get a book out in the world and if I reach just one person that will be enough for me then of course you're immune to the broader vicissitudes of the of the industry um I suspect more people want the former than the latter but you know someone will want the latter I'm sure I mean, just speaking from the point of view of someone who's basically lived on the poverty line for most of my life, having money is fucking fantastic. I do recommend <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> it. Oh my god, money is great. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, people shouldn't be embarrassed about wanting to be financially successful, and this right. is a financial enterprise, right? Like, mm -hmm. people are paying real money to buy these books from publishers who are paying. Well, they're not paying the people who do the actual work very well, but the people at the top are getting a you know really good paychecks. Absolutely. <laughs> he stopped himself before he uh, he went a little he went a little too far. <laughs> but they're no, all no, really oh, good oh. people at an individual level. <laughs> well, the people oh. that we've met. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, and, and that's the thing, right? Is like when you're when you're dealing with these publishers and and things aren't going quite the way you want it's very clear that there are forces you don't understand at work yep. and that you, I at least may never understand. Um, but my, my point was only that, uh, you know, authors in my opinion should not be embarrassed at all to mm -hmm. have a goal of, I want yeah. to do this for a living and not just mm -hmm. do it for a living, but I want to be comfortable financially mm -hmm. or yeah. I want to be rich as hell, right? Like that's fine. That's great. Yeah. People in every industry do that. Like this, mm. this is a commercial industry and people don't treat it like that. And because they don't, there is a, as mentioned previously, also there's a huge supply of people who are just happy to see their name on a book and that's a life accomplishment and great. 
uh, you know, that that's not the that's not the totality of this industry. It's it it should be a money making enterprise for all involved. I just wanted to to briefly mention because you 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 talked a lot about Sunday Times and how it depends heavily on special editions and crates and everything. And this is probably a separate episode as well, or several. But I think it's worth mentioning, and Sunny, you in particular can probably uh, tell us more about this, but it's worth mentioning that the U.S. market doesn't quite function the same, right? There aren't really large mm. crates, at least that I know of. Um, there aren't huge special edition uh, producers that are swaying the market. It does seem like more of a free-for-all on the U.S. side, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, the so a big crate purchase in the US side is like two or 3000 books, but it's it's probably I think we had a couple we were in a couple of crates for the US side. It was like 3 or 400 books, which is great, mm. but but it's not like 7 to 20,000, which is what you get on the UK side. Right. Um I felt like there yeah, it was more of a free fall, it was more dependent on trade reviews and independent bookstore recommendations. Uh, I don't actually know how you would go about hitting list in the States. I think we would have to find an author who's done that and talk to them about that in depth. Yeah. Um, I suspect there's more to it that goes on than what it looks like on the outside if the UK side is any judge. Yeah. All right. We have now reached the portion of our podcast where we ask Richard to sing his favorite song to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Authors Karaoke. <laughs> Spin up Just that track. Carried. Go ahead, Sonny. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I've completely forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, yeah. Um, Scott, goodness sake. This is something that Richard was talking about actually the other day. I was thinking about how, you know, it's not like we're not stupid, right? Like, and I think publishers have a tendency to kind of either out of compassion for our egos or just it's easier to manage us. They have a tendency to assume that writers don't want to know stuff. Uh, and no writer I've ever met has felt like that. So it's just frustrating because I think if they were honest and upfront, I mean, Richard even suggested, like, if they're approaching people saying, look, you've got a tier one book deal, a tier two book deal, a tier three book deal. This is what exactly. it means. This is what we commit to. I think people would sign that. I think I think they would still get people saying, fine, I'm happy to be mid-list. I know what it means. I know what's expected of me. I know what my limits are and what I will and won't get pitched for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, for most for most people, it's the difference between having a book deal and having nothing. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, people will, I think, in most cases, accept. I remember Orbit yeah. once saying, um, you know, our, our goal is to be the number one choice for um, science fiction and fantasy authors. And I just remember thinking to myself, <laughs> people will just take any deal they can get. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not like. Oh, I'm just actually swimming in like 10 publishing deals, I'm gonna, but I'm going to go to Orbit because they're the premier kind of, it's like, well, I've got one deal. Um, so yes, I'm going to accept it. I mean, it just made me laugh at how kind of um, the, the idea that all these authors are just kind of like choosing which publisher they want to go to because um, they've sort of positioned themselves in that way. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think if, 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 a, if a, as you said, if a, if a publishing house said, okay, this is our tier one title, so we're going to give you this big advance and you're going to get all of our money or this is your tier two title. It's, um, you know, we're going to do social media marketing only and and blah, blah. And you can only ever, you can move up a tier, but we guarantee you'll never move down. You know, this is a kind of a baseline of, of attention and money spent on you. I think people would respond really well to that. Um, but uh, 
I, I, I think it's, it's just a huge part of it. It's just that natural tendency of human beings to want to avoid having awkward conversations with one another. Yes. Um, and, you know, ultimately it's, as I sort of alluded to earlier, no one really wants to think about a book publishing deal as a commercial transaction because you're mixing creativity with commerciality. Um, and of course it's both. Um, but, you know, publishers are interested in commerciality and you're interested in creativity and those two often, you know, lock horns. Um, and so more often than not, they, they won't just come out and say, well, we don't like this because it doesn't, you know, tick these commerciality boxes for us. You know, we can't sell this aspect of the novel, blah, 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 because you're like, but that's my, that's how I've expressed, you know, my allegory. I've expressed it in this way. And you know, it means, you know whatever it's it so it's an uncomfortable they're uncomfortable bedfellows and nothing's going to change that in the near future but certainly like upfront communication about the nature of the relationship would alleviate so much of i think author kind of ill feeling in the industry yeah i think i think that would be huge the other part of why i think it doesn't happen and probably won't is that then you know if they had very specific and detailed tiers of what they were committing to they'd then have to do that right <laughs> yes <Yeah, that's> <laughs> <laughs> legal whereas, obligations yeah <laughs> yeah whereas <laughs> now you know there's zero accountability really on on the corporate side as far as the corporation is concerned that's mm -hmm. perfect You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.